Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 65 is what we're at, I think. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of questions from listeners. Uh, you want to stick around for this. We've got a lot of good information and some good fun as well. All that coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations, freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get going today, I want to give a shout out to some people that really helped the show incredibly this past month with their support of 50 dollars or more here we go Emmaus Moto Tours Raymond Lane Matthew Gebhard Philip Hand Igor Sarkasovs Randy Dellum thank you all very much it's just great to have that kind of support and remember you could get a shout out on here too anything $50 or more gets your name shout out on the show just like you heard me do but it doesn't take that much anything $10 or more gets you some Adventure Rider Radio stickers for your your bike your pannier we would love your monthly support on our Patreon account please drop by our website adventureriderradio.com and click on support now in case Raw is a new discovery for you we do another show every week called Adventure Rider Radio. It's the most popular uh, motorcycle podcast. Drop by our website and see what's happening there at AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now, here we go, raw for June 2021. <laughs> and I can still walk. There you go. Okay, recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host. I'm going to start with Sam Manicom in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hey, hi, everybody. It's really good to be back again. You are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to go for this one. we got a lot to talk about today. We certainly have. This is going to be excellent. Shirley Hardy-Ricks and Brian Ricks are in Australia. Good morning, Brian and Shirley. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited. I'm excited I'm going for a ride. Oh, <laughs> man, you say this every time. I mean, last time you left early because you were going for a ride. When are, you, are, you, are you leaving early again? No, we've no. just had a... Um, a snap lockdown, just a circuit breaker lockdown for a couple of weeks. So the man's just a bit obsessed, but he's allowed, he's allowed well, to go out next well, week. Well, let me tell you about oh. this. This ride was supposed to, well, there was a ride supposed to go on before COVID hit where all my mates were uh, going over to Europe, hiring bikes and riding the Swiss Alps. And I thought, yeah, I could, I could hook into that. Then COVID hit, so they had to cancel that. So we decided we'd do a ride out to Ayers Rock in the middle of Australia. Um, they're all from Sydney, so uh, we thought, yeah, we could do that. We won't have to go out of the, of the country. But then COVID hit and they closed the state borders, so none of us could do that. So we replanned again and we thought, oh, we'll do a ride through northern New South Wales, just out of Sydney. I said, oh, yeah, I'll cross the border in, from Victoria into New South and we can ride up the Darling River and be, have a nice time. And then they closed the borders again. So... Two weeks ago, they decided, oh, well, we'll do a short ride along the border between Victoria and New South Wales, uh, out to Wentworth and back and through the mountains. I said, yeah, right. So a couple of us in Victoria decided we'd do that. And guess what? They closed the bloody borders again because of some idiot getting uh, COVID and, and putting it in amongst the community. So now... I'm riding up to Canberra for a, a meeting and the borders have just opened up in the last couple of days 
So I'll apply for my permit and I'm off. Last time I had the bike packed and ready when they closed the border on me. So I'm not even going to throw anything in the bike. I'm just going to put the key in it, turn it and go. Wow. I think I know why you've had this luck that you've had. You're not taking Shirley. That's your mistake. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> like Thanks, Jim. Uh, you know, Jim, there is always that lockdown situation where my sentiment is just get him out of the house, okay? <laughs> Can you make an exception? Just send him off. Michelle Lamphere is in the U.S. Uh, Michelle, hello. I assume you're you're at home in the Black Hills of South Dakota. I am. It's gorgeous here. And yes, hello, everybody. How much snow do you have this morning? <laughs> None today. Oh. In fact, it, uh, it's been a warm couple of weeks. A lot of the U.S. is really under um, heat advisories and struggling with a lot of high temperatures and drought. And there's already smoke um, from fires in Montana and Wyoming blowing into South Dakota right now. So we went literally from winter into full-on summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Let's bring in Grant Johnson. Grant is in British Columbia. Hello, Grant. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. I was really bummed to miss last time out, but sometimes you just can't do it. There's just so much else going on. But I hope somebody out there missed me last last uh, episode. You weren't here last episode? I wasn't we, there. See, we you did. did. I knew you didn't miss me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. I'm glad somebody missed me. <laughs> who? Who's who that? It's, it's Grant. Grant Johnson. He's the guy in British Columbia. <laughs> Yeah, but that other part of the world. <laughs> Sounds a bit too cheerful to the likes of me, eh? Yeah. Oh, I'm happy. We've got decent weather finally. We had a lot of rain, but uh, they're actually complaining about drought in some places, but it keeps raining and raining, but it's we're getting some drought and some fire, forest fire issues, but uh, nothing serious yet. And I'm going riding next week for four days off-road. Yes. Very nice. It's about time. Wow. So you going by yourself? No, I've got a friend going with me, a guy I've been riding with since I was 16, if you can believe it. Um, so we're, we're getting out and going for a ride, and a couple other friends are going to join us for a day along the way. And uh, we're riding in Princeton, which is just a ton of off-road beautiful stuff that we're organizing for the Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness event. Is that happening this year? <clears throat> we're not sure yet, but it's not looking good at the moment. There's issues with getting enough people in the area vaccinated right. and a few other issues. So we're kind of preparing for it in case things are okay, but I'm not optimistic. We will be announcing before this goes live. So if anybody's wondering, yep, we will already have announced whether we're go or not. But at the very least, we'll be ready for next year. <laughs> oh, like that's last year we were ready for this year. Yes, all set to go a year ago. I started laying tags out for this event in 2019. Does anybody remember that far back? I, I do, because we no. talked about the type of tags. I think you were using wooden tags, and I asked about the yes. string you were using. Yes, um, and I have worries. <laughs> the tags were actually uh, painted so that they had some protection, but it's just ordinary string strain because we wanted it to be biodegradable, not plastic and all that. And I have my worries that there's going to be a whole lot of tags flushed down the river. So, I don't know. That's what we're going to have to check. We'll find out. <laughs> At worst, I'll have to put all new tags out. 
Well, um, for today, we, we've got a, we got a bunch of things to talk about today. We're going to talk about how long um, a new bike should be on the market before you travel with it and uh, a bunch of other things. So let, let's tackle that first one. And these are all listener questions. We've got a whole bunch of, of listener questions on this one. We've got a, a message here from Jay Benson. And uh, the topic is when to take a bike. So um, I'm, I'm going to sort of read his, his email here. Uh, when a bike is launched, it has no track history no known faults or at least few known faults. Uh, the weaknesses aren't known. So his question is how long should you wait before taking one of the new bikes on an extended trip? Now he has a, a follow-up question saying that if you have the opportunity to buy a bike new after it has been gently run in and had its first service, how long before you take the bike on the trip? Now that, um, that of course is two different questions, right? They could mistake that and think it's the same question. The first one is the new model that comes out. So in other words, we could look at uh, the Harley, for instance, the Harley Pan America. You know, how long do you wait after that bike is launched to find out what sort of problems, you know, happens? You find out, I don't know, it's, it's got some sort of issue or, or what issues it would have because everything has issues. And then the other one is whatever bike you buy, how much of a break-in or how much of a rundown or how much ride time do you do with it before you feel that it's worthy to take on the trip? So let's tackle the first one first, I guess. Does anyone have any rules? I mean, Brian, do you have a rule in your mind that yeah. you say you never touch a new model that comes out? Yep, I certainly do, Jim. Um, I never, I would never consider buying the first model of anything. And um, I've got a mate who's actually bought a Pan American and just waiting for delivery on it. And as a, and you look at the specs on that bike, and they look fantastic. Mm-hmm. But it's an unknown. It's a brand new engine. It's brand new componentry in it. Um, you don't know um, if there's spares availability parts uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, yeah, sure, you can take some things with you, but you know you get stuck somewhere in South America or in the middle of Russia somewhere, and you're looking for spare parts, and uh, they're not readily available or um, compatible to others to some things like, say, for Brembo brake uh, pads or something like that. I really think that's a bit of a risk to take the first model of anything, no matter what it is. And it, even bikes um, that have been around for a long, long time, like the venerable um, DR650 Suzuki, which is a great bike, which has been in production for, well, I might be wrong here, about 30 years, I think. But um, that has uh, still some issues. That, um, as soon as you get it and want to take it overseas, they know what the problems are and they fix it straight away. I think <laughs> – I think they call it a doohickey or something, some strange name the boys call oh, that's, it. But it's, that's but the it's KLR you're talking about. That's the KLR. Oh, the KLR, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, KLR. Yeah, yeah, you should know that, Michelle. And it's I the do. same thing. And, it, and it's been like that, hasn't it, for, for since the bike was produced? Yeah, it's nice to know yeah. they haven't changed the problems. You can count on it. <laughs> you, you can buy a newer model KLR and still have the same problem with the, the chain tensioner, that, the thing that is yeah. now referred to as a doohickey. Michelle, have you done yours? I'm sure you have. I have done the do. Yeah. <laughs> the brand new model the KLR, they fixed. They did fix it. Oh, did they? They say. They hmm. say they fixed it. We don't know yet. Right. <laughs> they do Sometimes they don't not to, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> You'd all be the same. Wouldn't take the new model of anything, would you? I wouldn't. I would give it a, a year. I think second year, you're pretty mm. safe. Uh, first year, yeah, let's find out what the teething problems are. You're going to hear about the issues. The it's always the you don't hear about the non-issues. The 
to bikes that don't have a problem. But when there is a problem, boy, you sure hear about it. So I would want to have that little bit of information under my pocket and know that I'm okay. Um, and I'm a big fan of preventive maintenance and fix it in advance and make sure you've covered yourself and um, make sure that it's a model that's going to be reasonably popular worldwide if you're going to go on a world trip. I mean, Pan America, there's Harley dealers virtually everywhere. So you should be not too bad on getting parts. You might have to wait because they might never have seen one themselves if you're in some strange country. But at least with through the Harley network, you're going to be able to get parts for it. And I think that's, that's an important thing to think about. But if it's a model that's only in certain markets, for instance, some bikes are available in North America and not available in Europe and vice versa, you've got to kind of think about, you know, what is the availability really like? But again, to, to yeah. uh, adjust that slightly myself anyway, you know, you can get just about anything from your home dealer within a couple of weeks, virtually anywhere in the world. FedEx, UPS, DHL, they'll fly it in. Now, it may cost you an arm and a leg to get it out of customs, but you can get it. And often that's worth whatever price it is. It's one thing to wait for a part, though, but it's another if it's a problem that no one's figured out yet. Like, I think of some of the weird stuff like, um, let me think. Uh, remember, I've heard with the Triumphs. There were some years of Triumphs with, um, where, where I remember seeing somebody say, no, the, the only way it'll start is like when they have this particular issue, and this is with fuel injection, is they've got a, they've turned the ignition on or something and rotate the throttle full without starting it all the way full and then let it go back again. I think they did that twice and then it fires right up or something, but just just some weird issues like that or electrical problems or something like that. If you, if you run into something, uh, a problem and you're at some dealer in South America, wherever, a long way from home, you may not just be waiting for parts. You may be waiting for diagnostics and it may be the type of thing where it runs and quits again. And that can certainly get very frustrating on a trip. Yeah. 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 That, that's very true. Uh, just a, a quick aside. We were in our um, Land Rover Discovery in the middle of nowhere. And um, we pulled up at this beautiful outlook out in the middle of the desert and uh, took some photos, get back in the car, won't start. Will not move. You know, it'll, it'll turn over. Uh, but the engine won't fire. And um, luckily, I'd spoken to um, some mechanics about it, and they said, oh, yeah, sometimes it just needs tripping. So what you have to do is uh, you turn the engine on, and you've got to pump the accelerator 12 times to the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Don't (laughs) – just pump the accelerator to the floor and back, and then uh, hit the starter, and it'll go. And you know what? It did. Wow. (laughs) Strange things like that. You know, back in the days of carburetors, you know that what you're pumping the throttle would do something because it, you know, it's pumping with your accelerator. But in your early pump. days of carburetors, there was no accelerator pump. Cranking what? the throttle open did nothing. Well, with a, with a motorcycle, a, a linkage. Yeah, yeah, with a motorcycle. Yeah. Well, it's because it's you're talking variable venturi carburetor. Is that what you're talking about? Well, no, that your yeah. your basic basic carburetor. You open the throttle and nothing happens at all. Right, but a carburetor in a you, vehicle though always has an accelerator yeah. pump. Because, on a car, yes. Yeah, because you need that extra fuel. And, w- and what it's going to say is we understand this with, you know, with Brian's situation being that it's fuel injection. You think that will do nothing, but it's yep. this weird little computer thing. And that takes time to figure out and also to uh, propagate throughout, you know, the, the environment, you could say, where everyone hears about it. And you start to learn, okay, this is what I'll do if I have that particular problem. And that's just what we're talking about. That's exactly it. I mean, that's a car. Yeah, but I mean, exactly. that sort of thing with a bike. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And the Jim, other it issue takes a while. 
for that information to get out into the forums and the chat rooms and for people to kind of establish this, uh, you know, awareness or this, this data pool of, of problems and fixes and all of that. And those are great resources to have. But when you're dealing with a new model, that takes a little time to build that information on the internet. Yeah. And like with your KLR, Michelle, you, you know, you can go and find all the information, everything that goes wrong. Right. You can look it up and you can find out what people do to fix it and modify it, all of that stuff. It's so easy and, and you feel so yeah. confident, don't you really? I mean, you can go to the internet. Absolutely. But then it's been out there for a long time. And I think that's where, you know, dealing with a brand new model would be challenging because it takes a little while for that information to get out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a perfect example of that is uh, me when I set off because my bike was the first year of the Paralever um, BMW Airhead. And I had no idea that it was such an issue um, that you um, adapted the spring according to the weight that you were carrying so that you kept the angle of the suspension and therefore the Paralever to, to best conditions for, for what you were carrying. So, of course, I broke it in 22,000 miles. But, you know, this, com- <laughs> this conversation bothers me because actually what we're saying is that motorcycle manufacturers build ex- expecting to fail. No, no, I don't I, agree with that. No, neither do I. I. I think that it's, it's, there's so many parts in a new vehicle, especially one that's designed from the ground up, like with the, the Pan America is with the Harley Davidson ground up design. The, the, I think the engineering is amazing nowadays. It's just incredible. I mean, you look at the reviews so far on the Pan America, it sounds like it's, you know, everybody seems to love this bike, but there's stuff that that's going to happen no matter what, you know, there's, um, there's always something that's going to mess up. There's, there's going to be some weak point. And I think that's and what it will about. be because, because human beings are using it and everybody's going to use it in a different way. And after a while, you've got a set of people that want to make um, a new bike do a particular set of things that are different to what everybody else is ask, asking it to do. And all of a sudden, yeah. this um, unpreconceived idea, God, that was bad grammar, yeah. but you get what I mean, um, yeah. is going to rear its head. And all of a sudden, everybody's going to be going, good grief. And they'll start learning. Yeah. Or, or it could yeah, just I be think, something yeah. that was a manufacturer's defect. I mean, think of the space shuttle, for instance, a defect in something yeah. way back on the line. And then it, and it catches up. I mean, there, there's a lot feeding a new bike, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of technology, a lot of outside sources feeding a new bike, a new anything, I guess. I'll, I'll give you an example of the BMW uh, GS when they first brought out the 1100 GS, um, and BMW, a very, very good company, they test and test and test and test until they try and break things, and they put out this fantastic bike. It came out to Australia, and the boys out here broke it. They uh, were riding across deserts, across those um, uh, those berms that we have and the, the corrugations and all the rest of it, and it was breaking the um, uh, rear mounts, um, engine gearbox mounts. And uh, BMW recognised that and fixed it in the next model. Um, and I think there was a retro fix. And that brings me to the other point is uh, recalls. You get more recalls in new stuff um, over the first 12 months. But you still get recalls five years later. With uh, There might be a rerouting of the front brake line or something like that, which is rubbing. Um, they're the sort of things that um, they pick up on fairly early in the in the piece over the first 12 months to two years, I think. Yeah, well, my 2007 GSA has a recall for a fuel pump. That's 14 yes. years old, and there's a recall for it yes. now. So well, you, you can never be sure that all the bugs are fixed. So I think wait a year to get the worst of it out of the way, 
And then if you love the bike, go for it. Yeah, you just know? accept yeah. that problem solving is going to take you in some interesting circumstances. And yeah, that's um, true. That's, that can be part of the adventure if you're the patient's positive type and you've got the time to be able to deal with eventualities. Yeah, um, if, you, if you're on a things, schedule, that's a different thing entirely. Well, yeah. it is. And I think one of the things that would affect my decision-making process if I was deciding whether to take a, a new bike or not would be whether I was going into Carne countries or not. Because, of course, a new bike, Carnets can cost an absolute fortune. And if that was the case, then it might put me off straight away. Yeah. Take an that's old a really bike. good point. And I was also wondering about the warranty. I wondered if, I mean, for example, some of the warranty would be worldwide warranty or, you know, taking a look, I guess I'd want to understand that more in depth about what parts are covered, what labor is covered and what other, you know, services are available as you're traveling overseas. So I think as Brian or someone mentioned earlier, make sure, or maybe it was Grant, that there are dealerships in the countries where you're headed so that you have, you know, resources to work on that new model. Yeah, if it makes you need it a lot it. easier, a lot less pressure. I yeah. know when, when I had, oh, I can, off, I can give an example that. on that. Uh, okay, oh, sorry, sorry. I'll give you an example, an example on that, Michelle. Um, we used to pop um, output seals out on our GS1200 uh, all the time. And uh, I'd taken this bike, my test run for this bike to, before I took it around um, over to South America was to ride it around Australia. So I did over 20,000 kilometres on it in the sort of riding that we were going to be doing for the next 18 months. And um, it popped um, output seals, so they just replaced it. And we were in South America, and it went again, and I replaced it. And it's only a ten or twelve dollar part. And if you know how to put the seal in, that's okay. Um, but you'd think it'd be covered under warranty. It was a pretty new bike, and it was still popping seals out when we got into America. Now, luckily, I had a friend at BMW who got BMW America to replace the seal for me. Um, um, for which was it's not covered under warranty in America. Uh, it's an Australian bike, and you'll find that anywhere in the world. Um, the problem I, I fixed the problem myself when we got it home. I refaced all the services, um, which hadn't been done properly in, in manufacture, and it is not a problem now. But there you go. That's a classic example of a great travel bike. I'm, I'm sorry, the last line didn't. Re- I, what do you mean a classic example of a great travel bike? You had to fix it yourself. Well. It's, well, yeah, that's true. But, you know, it's a, it's a great travel bike, but it has its foibles. And mm. every bike can be different. Like the models afterwards, they never had a problem with it. But my particular model in this particular batch, on this particular day, uh, something had gone wrong with the the, 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 the way they'd ref- or faced the surfaces in the final drive, and it caused a problem. Surely. Now, would you buy a new bike to go on a trip? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. I mean, we our, our GS was reasonably new at the 1200 when we went to South America, but those sort of issues aren't my issues, Jim. You know, like that. Stop being so facetious. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you would never buy a new bike anyway, but you know, I did find that story that Brian told interesting. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but Brian's going to go on a big trip and then he comes up with some scheme that he has to ride 20,000 kilometers around his own country to test quote unquote the bike before they, I mean, that's pretty good, you know, crafty. Very crafty. Yeah. Well, good night. 
You did indeed. It's okay. When I bought uh, my 87 or sorry, 86 R80GS and headed off around the world in 87, we drove it out of the parking lot or out of the shop with zero miles on it and just rode it. And it was fine. Yeah. You know, but- that we, one had been wanted, dropped off the back of the truck, if memory serves me correctly. That off is the, back the one. Of the truck. That mm-hmm. is absolutely the one. So it did have a bit of work on it to fix it up. But, yeah, zero miles, just go, and it was fine. We had very, very little issues with it. Uh, certainly nothing that would be warrantable, minor things that's not even worth talking about. And it just went and went and went. And the best part of it that I was very careful to be sure about was in those days, you had a five-year unlimited mileage warranty on new BMWs. Oh, nice. <laughs> so here I have a brand new bike with a guaranteed five-year unlimited mileage warranty to go around the world. And do you think I was able to claim once on it? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so all the warranty in the world doesn't necessarily do you any good at all. Well, that's good. <laughs> but, but this brings us into the second part of the question. How long do you run a bike? whatever bike you buy, whether it's a, a KLR that you know what is potentially a, a problem on it or the Harley Davidson, the new Harley or whatever bike, how long do you run that new bike after you took it from the dealership floor to go? Now, Grant, that's a good example, but I mean, un, that doesn't really set a precedent. That's just one anecdotal story, right? You you happen to have a sure. bike with, with no issues. Other people have not been so lucky. Uh, Michelle, where do you stand on this? Uh, well, as a rule, I have mostly bought used bikes, but I did buy one brand new bike in my life and that was my KLR (laughs) and uh, bought it specifically with the intention of taking it to South America. And by then it was a Gen 2. It had a lot of, you know, I, I shouldn't say a lot, but all of its issues were fairly well known and talked about. So it was something that I was, um, you know, it seemed pretty straightforward to me. I knew what to expect and maybe what to watch out for with it. But I rode it around. I, in fact, went uh, to a Horizons Unlimited meet before taking off on the trip, and that was in Ontario. So I did that trip, and I think down to an Overland Expo event in Arizona before heading to South America. So I, I think I had something like five or 10,000 miles on the bike before I left. So you did some shake good running runs with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, had an and it was just as much for all of the rest of my kit too. It was to test, you know, packing and tent and all of the other equipment, but definitely to run the bike in too. That's a really good point. You just mentioned about kit. I'm going to come back to that, but first I was going to jump back to something that you said, Michelle, and then Brian said something about as well was that was warranty. And, and I just want to point out that Brian had made a very good point there about how, if you buy a bike in your country, your warranty is not going to be valid in another country. Right. And that's something that if you, if you haven't run into that before, you haven't thought about it, that you may find yourself caught and, and surprised because you're thinking, well, it's a Harley Davidson, it's a KTM, it's a Kawasaki, it should be covered. But all these, the countries are set up with their own importer that handles their warranty. So they don't want to handle your warranty if you come from another country. So that's something to keep in mind. That's, that's a pretty big thing. Yeah. And that was certainly the case for my KLR. And I knew that um, going into it, which is why I wanted to put on five or 10,000 miles to see if there were, you know, any issues that were going to show up by that point before I crossed out of the country. Because I knew once I crossed into Mexico, my warranty was effectively null and void. Mm-hmm. 
And the issues that you're going to get yeah. that you were looking yeah. for is going to be things like Brian's blown seal, um, you yeah. know, leaking things, bolts that haven't been been put in properly. Those sorts of things are the things that are going to show up. Not those long-term things like your doohickey or, or a wiring issue right. or something like that. Not so much mm-hmm. anyway. Right. Exactly. Michelle, you mentioned kit there, and, and I thought that's, a, that's an excellent point to go along with that, is that um, when we're talking about how long should you run your bike, so you've got a brand new bike off the showroom floor, which means you've got a bunch of kit that's never been on that bike before. You want to pay close attention, in my mind, to that kit that's been bolted onto this bike, this new bike. Is it positioned correctly? Is it touching the exhaust? Will it catch fire? Those sorts of things. And that, that kind of demands a shakedown, doesn't it, Grant? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm um, well known for doing shakedowns. I tend to just load her up and go and cross my fingers, I guess. But uh, I think too many people, and we've heard this hundreds if not thousands of times, people load their bike up, head off, and oh dear, there's a problem here. Uh, Doug Watke's famous for it. He got about 30 or 40 miles down the road and said, hang on, I got to unload some of this crap. So he unloaded it onto his buddy who was going along with him for the first stretch. And he says he had like a fishing rod and a big knife and all kinds of stuff, and he just didn't need it, and he couldn't carry it, and the handling was terrible, and it just wasn't working. So we see that all the time. And when we headed off in '87, Susan and I got as far as California, we sent a box of crap home. Just don't need it. You know, we we it's too much stuff. We don't need all of this. The bike ends up handling terrible, and repacking it all is such a pain. So. We didn't get even out, even get out of the shipping yard on our first trip before we realised we had too much gear because uh, we had to pack our bike and ship it overseas to England, and we hadn't done a, a, a pack into those panniers, and we just did it by, um, well, you know, memory basically. My memory <laughs> thought my pannier was the TARDIS. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh she's not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I, I'm serious. We we loaded our bike up. We had friends take us to the um, the shipping yard, and we unpacked the bike out of the box and got it started. And went to load all the gear on the bike. I couldn't fit it on, so mm-hmm. we had to load half it into their car and uh, sort it out from there. Once we got out of the shipping yard, and then we posted more home. It's it's the same thing as Grant was saying. We post home regularly. You think you need this and. You work out you don't, and you need something else instead, and it's it's all a work in progress. So well, I've come to a conclusion in the last few years that you are correctly packed if you have at least two inches at the top of every each saddlebag empty. There's nothing there. That means you've got room for souvenirs. You don't have to fight to get everything into exactly the right twisted, convoluted shape to fit into that little tiny corner down the bottom there. Because, yes, I know it can fit in there and that will save me another half an inch. It's it's just too much trouble trying to pack perfectly to the gunnels. It's just too much work. Listen, listen to Grant, Shirley. Just listen to Grant. <laughs> listen to me. You can Shirley, buy I'm going to just mention something here because I think Grant's wrong about this um, in two ways. The first is you, you've got to have room for, for um, bottles of whiskey. Um, that's incredibly important. You've got to pack everything in nice and tight so when you're bouncing around on all of those corrugated roads, you haven't got the friction factor inside. And ask me how I know. That is um, true. You know, that's a topic we've never covered before. How do you, you carry your whiskey? whiskey <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the time of day, Jim. 
You know, the glass you know, bottle would break. I mean, do you put it in, do you put it in a stainless steel container? You know, all those sorts of questions. Glass? Middle of your clothing. Good grief. No, I, I specially bottle mine. Um, ask um, Greg and Melanie Turp. They'll tell you. In <laughs> fact, I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, you can put that in the show notes if you like. <laughs> yeah. Sam, I, I was going to ask you, though. I know you've bought your one brand new bike for your lifetime. But if you were going to buy another bike, are, are you of the same mindset? Run to, uh, like a shakedown trip? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I, I had 2,000 miles when I left the UK at the beginning of the big trip and it was nothing like enough. Um, I, as the guys have all been saying, I carried far too much stuff. Um, but one thing that section of the trip did teach me, and this came about purely and simply by mistake because I was such a novice motorcyclist and didn't know what I was doing, I rode slowly. And so for the first miles of the trip, I had time to get used to the luggage and to repack and to, to change the load. But also I wasn't making the bike behave in a way that perhaps somebody who was much more experienced and excited to be out on the big adventure might have done, you know, the old e-half factor. Um, and I'm sure that my, one of the reasons my bike has done as well as it has over the years is because those first 10,000 or so miles, I was going gently. Um, and I was learning, you know, how to pack and stuff. Now, Birgit won't mind me mentioning this, but when we started riding together, so I was four years into the eight-year trip, and um, she was a complete novice motorcyclist, and I had explained to her the importance of um, only carrying um, things in her panniers with the weight balanced from one side to the other. And like all novices, you know, you listen to all of the advice you get, but you don't necessarily take it on board. And when we set out... Um, from the port in Mombasa in Kenya, her bike was bouncing around all over the place because she hadn't got that balance worked out. And I reckon that she probably had about two kilos heavier on one side than on the other. And she paid the price for it. Fortunately, she didn't fall off, but she came close to it. That that balance is so important, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Sam, when you were traveling slower at the start, do accidents happen slower at that point for you? Or were they happening at the same speed as later on? <laughs> you don't have to answer. No, I, I, I'm happy to answer this, Jim. Oh, great. All my accidents happen in slow motion. Oh, very nice. <laughs> I'm really the disappointed one, in you, The only one that I don't remember was the 17 bone fracture accident in Namibia, and I don't remember a thing about that, which I'm kind of glad about. Yeah. Because if I did remember what happened... Cool. How would that affect me? Getting back I on the bike. Years afterwards, dreading the thought that all of a sudden something would happen that would trigger the memory, and it might not be a good one. Yeah. yeah. Well, hey, you I, woke up afterwards, and you're okay now, so it's okay. Absolutely. And if it's I'm not going to remember it after all of this time, I'm not going to remember it. That's good with me. Moving mm -hmm. rapidly on. Well, <laughs> I, I think we covered that. Are, are we done with that? Anyone else have anything else to, to add to it? Okay, thanks, Jay Benson. Great question. That was that was fun discussing that. So the next one we have here is from Martin Hermoso. Now, um, there, there's several questions here. One, can traveling be an addiction? Two, do travelers feel that way all the time? And um, three, the best way to carry water. So let's do the first two to begin with. Sam, we'll start with you on this. Should traveling come with a warning label? This can be addictive. First of all, Martin... What three brilliant questions? Very nice. <laughs> um, so, um, so, can it become an, an addiction? Too right, it can. Ask me how I know. 
Um, I've never found a better way of living and I've never found a way of getting so much satisfaction out of a day. And for me, every day I'm not traveling or working on something to do with travel. It's a day where something is, uh, something important is missing. But I mean, this addiction isn't really dangerous though, um, is it? Unless we're talking prisons and accidents, eh, Brian? Um, But I think the the best way for anybody who gets addicted to travel is um, to start planning the next trip. That helps. Mm. But but addiction, we generally look at as, as a bad thing. So, I mean, is this, is this looking at an addiction as in you're going to sort of fall off the rails sort of thing? And, and head, I mean, I'm probably asking the wrong person, Sam, because I'm asking an addict about addiction. So, I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> maybe, that's a, maybe it's a bad place to start. It's <laughs> a terrible place to start, Jim. You're quite right. This, this is an addict talking and a proud addict, a happy addict. I smile a lot. <laughs> But, but I mean, yeah. do, do you think that travel, I mean, anybody jump in here. Do you think that travel is the type of thing that will make people sort of do something crazy? You go out and do a trip and then all of a sudden do something that none of their family or friends ever expected of them. I mean, are we talking a true addiction here? Well, that last question you asked there, or second last question, that there's things that their family and friends would never expect them to do. Most people, most people expect normal things out of their family members and normal is go to the football game and who won the, who won the game last night and things like that. Going traveling period is weird for most people. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to somebody the other day who had never been out of Manitoba in their life. I I was gobsmacked like, what? How could you not have been out of Manitoba? But Hey, that's normal for most people. So us travelers are, by definition, weird, unusual, strange. Mind you, if you called me normal, I'd be insulted. So it's all a, all a point of view, isn't it? I would never do that, Grant. Um, do, you, <laughs> do you think, with no, that, that person that, that you're, you're talking that's about in Manitoba, do you think that, that they could become addicted if they went off and did a trip, if they you know planned something, went out and did it? Do you think they would come back a changed person and say, I can't just stay in one place? I think that's possible, but extremely unlikely. We came to a conclusion a long, long time ago that there are two kinds of people. Cave people and tent people. Which are you? Define them. Well, cave people never move. You know, they they stay where they were born and they live within a block of where their mother lived. And uh, they never go anywhere and travel is just plain weird. Um, tent people are always peripatetic. They're on the move. They're changing locations. They're something, where's, what's over the horizon? What's interesting? This is boring. I've seen all of this. I've been here. I've done this. I'm tired of it. I want to see something new and exciting and interesting because I'm bored out of my mind with the same old, same old. Definitely. Uh, I, I think that's, um, there's, there's people like, oh, well, people like I count me, a bit cave, bit tent. I love traveling. We really enjoy our trips. You know, we've done 16 months, 12 months, eight months, but I love home. Mm-hmm. You know, I love Australia. I love my family. I love my friends. You can do both. Yes. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, don't, have to, you don't have to be a wanderer for your entire life to, or, or to be a homebody for your entire life. You can meld the two. And when I'm home, I love it. And when we're, when we're on the road, I love it. And um, the only drama when we get back is our friends get sick to death of hearing stories about trips. So you do have to watch <laughs> that you don't bore your friends to death. But um, 
Yeah, you can do both. I'm, I'm sure Michelle has enjoyed her trips, other than the broken leg perhaps, and is really happy running her beautiful motel in one of the best riding parts of, of the US. So, Yeah, very much. I'm, I'm with you, Shirley. I'm, I'm a bit of both because I do like to travel, but I like having roots and I like having a place to come back to. So somewhere in between. And I would say if, if I have a travel addiction, which I very much do, and, and I think we had a conversation at one point about motorcyclists versus travelers and both of those are maybe being part of each of those when you're an adventure motorcycle traveler. I'm very much a traveler. So I do like to go out and explore. I like to experience other cultures, other foods, see places, you know, bring to life some of the places that I've read about in books or historical places and be able to actually go travel there and see them. So I do crave that. And I would say that that um, craving in, in terms of the addiction arena um, kind of ebbs and flows. If I haven't been anywhere for a while, and COVID certainly did this, I, I get cooped up and I'm ready to go and and explore someplace new and just, you know, have something um, you know, on the horizon, as Sam rightfully pointed out too. It, it's nice to have a trip on the calendar, be thinking about something. I wouldn't say that I can't go long periods of time. I can, Um but it, I definitely crave travel and, and um, new experiences. And that's part of maybe my personality. And not all of my friends and family have that. They're not as curious about the world maybe as I am. I think this is an important point, actually, because the reality is that we're all human beings, aren't we? So we're all different. And whether we're cave dwellers or we're tent dwellers, we're all going to deal with overlanding by motorcycle in our own individual way. And that's part of the beauty of it, isn't it? We learn to be ourselves and the things that we find out about ourselves that tell us, well, hey, look, you know, I want to travel for, for three years. I want to travel for six months. Uh, I, I need to stop more often for longer periods or whatever else it is. We learn those things about us and that is ourselves. And that is one of the beauties of travel. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got so addicted by travel because I kept on learning stuff about myself because of putting myself in situations that I, I never would have found had I stayed at home. So it wasn't only the learning about the different places. And Michelle, you mentioned about um, seeing um, things in magazines and books and films and so on, and then wanting to go out and discover them for yourselves. We all know that um, a photograph can never do um, a scene justice. And that's one of the big differences, isn't it? Going out where all of your senses are going to be tingling, as well as seeing the, the 360 view. Absolutely. Perfectly put. Yep, surely that was a great perspective. Thank you very much for that. And it's important to understand that it's not binary, right? I mean, there's there's all different yeah. shades of gray in there. Great. Mm. So, um, let's talk about water. About uh, the best ways to carry water. Now, uh, I'm just going to throw in mine at first. I think the best way I've ever seen is these. I don't know if you can get them anymore, but there was these cans of dehydrated water. Not sure if I mentioned that to you before. <laughs> But small cans, <laughs> yeah, they make, you just basically pour the water and it makes double the water of the size of the can. It's very cool. <laughs> Great. What? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a can and you open it up and you just add water and it makes water. <laughs> they used to actually have these. Canadian canadian water. Thing. They used to have thing. They used to have these. The outfitters. They would. They would have de dehydrated water. Add ten to one. Just add water. You know, it'll make ten times more water than what's in the can. So, anyway, yeah. 
So now I've waited. Can That's I true. tell you my favourite water story, please? Sure. When when we travel, um, always go for the bottled water that you open the bottle yourself so yep. the seal hasn't been broken. Amen. We went to see a movie called Slumdog Millionaire. I'm not sure if others have seen yeah, the film. Yeah, great movie. Seen that. Yeah. It is a great film. And there's a scene where one of the brothers is working in a kitchen of a pretty crappy sort of restaurant and the um, the other brother comes in and gets a bottle of water and fills it up and puts the lid on it and gets the glue out yep. <laughs> and seals the lid with the glue. Now, we're sitting in a dark cinema and the, the room is silent until I've gone, shit, Brian, look what they're doing to the water. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. For a similar People story. People didn't understand my fear for this, but ever since then, whenever I've opened a bottle of water, I thought, oh, I wonder which kid's been at this with the glue. <laughs> we were in Nairobi. And there was a newspaper story came out about 98% of the bottled water sold in Nairobi was tap water. Mm -hmm. Everybody was taking the bottles that were sold as, you know, uh, fresh bottled water and they'd just refill them, put the lid back on. And the waiter would bring it out and open the bottle in front of you, but he made a little bit of a sound with his his mouth to make it sound like (laughs) the thing was going creak, you know, snapping open. And this was like there was 30 brands of bottled water in Nairobi and 29 of them were tap water. Wow. <laughs> yep. Oh so they got good mind. tap water. Yep. So, yeah, open it yourself. But even then, take a look at the, the cap as you snap it open. And is it really plastic that's breaking or is it glue? <laughs> the moral of this story is take your own water filters you shouldn't be using plastic bottled water anyway if you've got a choice and sometimes you don't know do you i mean surely there are some stages where you've got no choice because you need to carry the extra water or you've got no access to water that you can water filter so you've got to but yeah i remember watching that in some dog millionaire as well and just thinking yeah i know i've been caught a couple of times with that (laughs) was that an environmental message that you just made sam about not carrying uh, not using bottled water Oh, funny. Yeah, it actually was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I, yeah, I agree with the plastic bottle thing too, but sometimes it's just really difficult. I mean, we carry water in a, a camelback and sometimes where do you get the clean water to put in that, the safe water to put in that? The boiling it, it, uh, does a pretty good job of getting rid of a yeah. lot of stuff yeah. and there's all those additives, you know, those tablets you can get. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah we, we carry our water uh, on my back. Basically, we can both use it and we make sure that we've got um, some spares as well. Sometimes just um, some um, a litre or two of extra if we need it. Well, one of the joys of travelling through, I think it was Uzbekistan, they have the nondescript villages with a concrete block in the middle of them, which actually is a shop, and invariably they would have big bottles of water frozen. So yeah. you could buy one cold bottle, one frozen bottle, so within half an hour when you were dehydrated again in the 40-plus degree temperature, you had cold water which had just melted in the in the, um, in the the pannier. And that's the other thing I would do is um, of, a, of a morning when you're filling up your um, camelback to put on your back, um, overnight if there's a fridge at a, at a hostel or wherever you are, um, I'd um, do some ice cubes and put some ice cubes in the um, the camelback, and that lasts surprisingly well. Mm. 
yeah. particularly a good quality Camelback, which is quite well insulated. It'll last until lunchtime uh, with yeah. cool water. I fill mine up completely with ice cubes and then add a smidgen of water and it, it'll last virtually all day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And well, it's, it's very, very, very important that you hydrate all the time. Sip, sip, sip water. Yeah. Um, when, when you're thirsty, it's too late. You're dehydrated and your concentration's not there. I always have this argument with a friend of mine. He insists on stopping and drinking from a bottle, but I've already been sipping on a regular basis and I'm fine. And he stops and drinks and he says, yeah. I'm tired. And, yeah, you should have had that drink half an hour ago. Yeah, well, I didn't want to stop. Yeah, yeah. well, there you go. Yeah. Keep drinking. Yeah. Keep but when drinking. you've got a camelback, we can, um, I can actually get the hose and drink from the same camelback. We don't have to carry two. So we yeah. can both sip on water while we're, while we're moving. Mm. Yeah, Susan and I do the same thing. Um, I don't like it yeah. on my back when she's behind me, so we just put it in a pocket on the side of the saddlebag or on the top of the saddlebag, and she just hands me a, hands me the hose, and she can take a sip yeah. too, and that works great. Yeah, there's sometimes that just having the extra pressure of a, a body on your back and the camelback must be annoying, I'm sure. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, Positioning-wise. That's so, all right. Brian's just nodding here. He's not going to speak, but he is a great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but as far as carrying water, is anyone like that, that? It is one of the most difficult things to carry, fuel and water. I mean, they, you know, they're heavy, bulky, and you can't mix it in with everything because one of the problems with liquids is that if you put it somewhere where you're trying to keep things dry, this is my thought process, this is why I don't put liquids in my panniers because to me it doesn't make any sense to put water in there when I've got them sealed to try and keep the water out. So it's it's difficult to figure out where to carry it, and and so what we're looking for is does anyone have any tricks? Do you, do you guys have like ideas where bags, tubes, any other places other than the Camelback where you're carrying water? Yeah, ostrich eggs. Yeah, that works great. Yeah, oh, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, the, the bushmen in the Kalahari taught Sorry? me that. Um, ostrich eggs. Yeah, when Ooh. I when I was on safari, a walking foot safari in in the Kalahari desert, um, I bumped into a couple of um, bushmen. And um, they taught me this. And they also taught me the value of um, Coke bottles that fall out of the sky. And a, a straw is a, a really useful thing to have too. And they showed me how to find water in um, empty um, riverbeds and that sort of thing. It's, it's very impressive. Mm-hmm. Wow. I might be feeling a bit dull because it's so early. Could you just go back to the ostrich eggs again? What are you doing? <laughs> well, I mean, here's me thinking, how long can I spend this yarn for before I start getting virtual paper and things, rocks thrown at me from you lots? <laughs> I'm just thinking, somebody's listening in here to grab some some good information and, and you're going to tell them to take an ostrich egg? We have two ostrich eggs here, or is it two or three ostrich eggs? They're huge. They got one little hole drilled in the end of them. They hold a lot of water, and they're incredibly strong. So why not? Well, yeah, I mean, oh. and it actually is based in fact. That's what the bushmen do, um, or yes. traditionally did carry um, their water in. But I, I was um, leg pulling. I think one of the most important things with carrying water is um, using the centre of gravity. In other words, as much of the water that you're carrying down um, low and between the wheels as possible, um, and because that helps you to ride your bike in any condition, doesn't it? Dirt, gravel, potholes, busy um, inner cities. It is harder with two up, but I still think that it helps. With that, um, with that target. But one of the keys is working out where you're going to go. So in other words, how much water should you be carrying and how far off the beaten track you're going to go and for how long. Um, 
I think a regular assumption is about five litres for a fairly steady temperature range where you have the opportunity to top up a little bit and that allows you to keep hydrated and it is so important to do it. And you guys have all been talking about Camelbacks. Um, one of the keys with that is because you're taking regular sips of water, you're actually keeping yourself healthier and you're not wanting to stop and pee away so much of it because you're gently keeping your body hydrated. Um, I was talking to a doctor friend about this and he says it's much healthier to use camel packs than just bottles. I was very quiet because I always use bottles. Um, but I'm, I'm learning, you know, it takes a bit of time to teach me. But I use um, my tank panniers because it carries the weight up front and down low between the wheels and I can carry eight, eight litres in there absolutely easily. We've talked about the, the two in the slipstream with a hole in the neck before. Um, and I carry one in my tank bag, which is also doubling up as my water, um, my walk away bag. So if something goes wrong and I need to grab a bag and get, get out of there, then I've always got a bottle of water that's untouched within that bag. And that works also very nicely when, you know, you're, you're at border crossings and things like that, because um, some can take five or six hours. So having at least one bottle of water with you is a really important thing. Um, I know people that carry their water across the pillion seat when they're riding solo, because again, that's um, between the two wheels. It's not down low, but it helps. Um, some people have been using rotor packs, bags, um, or, you know, bottles, um, and they seem to go down quite well. They're, they're pretty um, quick release. Um, and they can be mounted in all sorts of different places on a motorcycle. Some friends of mine are real fans of um, roll-up water bladders. Uh, for example, Ortlieb, uh, they've got two purposes those have because they can also be used for showers. But most people seem to be coming back to camel packs um, to back up the water that they're carrying um, down low. And if you do have to carry water inside your panniers, um, do carry it in the front at the bottom. Um, and because again, that's weight down low in between the wheels. Um, I tend to carry um, five litres as a minimum, but I will top up that when I'm going um, further off the beaten track. And because I'm a bit of a cheapskate, I do tend to use two litre Coke bottles or water bottles to, to top up for um, temporarily and then I'll recycle them afterwards. See, um, there's nothing wrong with that though. I, I just want to stop you there because that the the Coke bottles or, or the disposable bottles, you can fill them up and then when when they you've used your water out of them, you can crunch them up so they can yep. take up less space. So, yep. you know, it's, it's quite a handy thing. Those seals on the caps, are, they're amazing. We all know that with pop bottles. They're, they're incredible. And even though if you've, you've scrunched them, um, so long as you've not jumped up and down on them, you can um, blow into them and you can reinflate the things. Yeah. So you, can, mm -hmm. you can use them again. If people are um, thinking about using um, water tanks, then consider stainless steel rather than any other uh, material because you get absolutely no aftertaste with stainless steel, which is fantastic when it's hot. And one of the mistakes that I made was that I bought um, a couple of cheap plastic water bottles and right. I didn't know about mm. how the water was going to taste once those bottles got hot and it was just awful. I really was thirsty and I needed to drink, but I've really battled to, to make myself drink it because it was drinking the taste of hot plastic and it yep. just wasn't pleasant well, at all. You're drinking plastic. That's what it is. The plastic yeah. is breaking. Yeah, down. I suppose. And the better quality plastic bottle water bottles, um, they don't seem to do that. So my tip to anybody is if you're in doubt, 
um, and you're in a, a, a camping shop or wherever, then warm the plastic bottle up in your hands, put it under your armpit. They'll wonder what on earth you're doing. They might think you're nicking it. So make sure you're doing it outside your coat. Um, but then smell it. See what it smells like inside once it's got warmed. And if it smells of plastic, then it'll taste of plastic too. So just don't do it. So you've been riding your bike. You're going to put this thing under your armpit and then you're going to smell it? No. So, hey, Sam, you, you started talking like a doctor there at one point. You, you said something about, uh, and we already talked about two in the slipstream and doubling up. I think you might just want to give a quick explanation for what two in the slipstream is. Oh, right. Okay. Um, two in the slipstream, um, it's, it's a, an Australian technique that I learned. And what you do is you put uh, your water bottle in um, a canvas cover or some, some heavy-duty um, fabric. You put a, a tiny hole in the neck of the water bottle and you strap it on um, to your bike where it's in the slipstream. And then as you're riding and the water's bouncing up and down inside, you'll get a very slow dribble out of that, that tiny hole. And it goes into the fabric and as you're riding, that evaporates. Um, and um, you'll end up with cool water to drink. I've been riding in um, 45 degrees Celsius and still had a cool drink. It's yeah. been just fantastic. Works so well. Yeah. Now, I know you've given that tip before and I just wanted to get it again. And that's evaporation. Evaporation takes heat and that's, it draws the heat away from the water. So that's yep. a great tip, I yeah. think. Love that's, it's, that's an old thing um, that we used to call them water bags. When I was working um, on the farm with Dad, we'd have them and we'd strap them to the front of the tractor, which is very hot. And you're talking 40 plus degrees. And they were, they were a Hessian bag. Uh, which would hold oh, five litres of water. And uh, as we're going along, the pickers picking the, the grapes would uh, grab it and have a sip and all that sort of stuff. And it was always cool water because of that evaporation effect. So what you're talking about, Sam, is the, the development of that really old system that we were using 50 years ago, you know? Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. And it just it yeah. just works. And it's it's so simple to do, isn't it? I mean, I've got, on, on yeah. Libby, I've got um, South African Army Surplus um, tank panniers. Uh, they're just canvas bags. Yeah. And these have got pockets on the outside of them. So it's really easy for me to do this. But before that, I just had a piece of cloth. And it was Hessian tight cloth. It was, you know, heavy yeah. duty cloth. And that was absolutely yeah. perfect. Um, it's really nice. It's really nice. Yeah. And you feel so guilty when you're not sharing it with everybody else. <laughs> Sam, you'd, uh, you'd mentioned stainless steel in there, and I just wanted to throw in there about, about stainless steel. The one thing with, with uh, Coke bottles, even the bags you get that you hold water in, they all tend to attract heat. They tend to absorb the heat. Stainless steel does not. So the one big thing I, I found many years ago, I used to use you know clear and, and translucent bottles all the time, for outdoors activities. And when I switched to stainless steel, it was like a whole new world. All of a sudden you have this cool water compared to um, what it is in a, in a bottle that acts as a, a bit of a greenhouse effect. The sunlight goes through it. So if you, if you can do it, stainless steel is just a, an amazing way, really superior way to carry water. And, you know, the, working on the old um, Overlanders two uses rule, of course, you've got that water bottle, stainless steel, you can fill it with hot water when you're climbing through, driving through um, cold temperatures and you've got a hot water bottle. Yeah, and you can pee in it at night. Oh, John, John, John. <laughs> Jim, Jim, you're being gross now. You mean you don't carry a funnel and a piece of hose pipe for that? Yeah. No, I, I, I just get up. But, but anyway, Michelle, do you have anything for this? 
Well, I did want to add, actually, I found when I was traveling at high altitude, just kind of a heads up, and I I assume most people know this, but I tend to really dehydrate much more quickly at altitude. And it's sometimes deceiving because the air temperature is cooler. So you don't really feel or notice um, that you're getting dehydrated, even if you're, you know, just riding something that's not a very strenuous ride. You don't feel thirsty. You aren't feeling overheated. But um, because at higher altitude, your heart actually beats faster because of the uh, air pressure and the different um, volume of pressure at at altitude, you are subtly um, having a more rapid heartbeat. You're actually breathing at a faster pace. And most of your um, perspiration or evaporation of fluids is done through breathing. As much as you also sweat a lot, a lot of it actually is is uh, expelled your your moisture content when you're breathing. So it's something just to be conscious of. And I think I read somewhere that um, at least in the U.S. we have sort of a benchmark that uh, you should, without activity, drink eight glasses of water a day just to kind of keep hydrated regularly. But at 10,000 feet of altitude, the uh, medical guide that I read said that you need to double it. And again, that's just without any extra activity. So instead of eight glasses of water a day, you need to be looking at 16 glasses per day. And then if you're also doing something strenuous, doing some, you know, really physical riding, technical riding, um, or spending a long day on the bike or working in the sun or anything like that, you add even more water need on top of that amount. Um, so just something to be aware of in particular at, at high altitude. That is so, such and certainly a good at high altitude, tip. anything anything is strenuous. Yeah. yeah. Just getting on and off well, the bike can be strenuous. Well your body your body runs on needs oxygen and there's less oxygen up there. So it's got to That's work right. twice as hard to get the oxygen out of the air. That's so right. you know it just might just makes sense, Michelle. When, when we're gasping for breath, we tend to do it through an open mouth rather than through yeah. our noses. And that means that we're losing even more moisture just because of that. And that, Michelle, you yeah. might maybe yeah. think also about the difference between a dry heat and a wet heat. When it's hot and sweaty um, weather, we, we see ourselves sweat and, and we can feel you know, how much water we're losing. But when it's dry heat, it just wicks away really fast, doesn't it? And we're quite often not right. conscious of how much we're losing. That's very true. And there were a lot of days when I was in the Andes, you know, for weeks on end, we were camping at 10,000 feet and even just, you know, you know, doing daily duties or chores around camp at 10,000 feet, I was amazed how I would get headaches because I was getting dehydrated and really not doing anything strenuous, but it might be something like 15 degrees Celsius or, you know, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And it wasn't that warm. So you didn't feel like you were thirsty. You didn't feel like you needed to drink. And sometimes you need to just make sure you're consciously hydrating. You actually have to make an effort to, to keep up with your water intake. You know, it often makes me wonder about um, people with with headaches. You know, headaches seem to be very common. People get a lot of them. I don't take very many tablets, like very many, uh, uh, not aspirin, but uh, Tylenol. I can't even remember the name of it. I, I rarely take them because what I do automatically when I start to get a headache is drink water. And almost always, 90% of the time or more, that's what it is. I'm dehydrated. So I wonder yeah. if this is more common in our life than what we realize. Most people don't drink enough, for sure. Yep. Not even anywhere near. I think the recommendation was like eight glasses of water a day is, is a common uh, number, but women need less. I think the, the recommendation is 3.7 liters of fluids for men and 2.7 of fluids a day for women. 
remembering that 20% of our daily fluid intake is from food. Mm. So you don't need, necessarily need yeah. to drink quite that much, but virtually everybody under drinks without a doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now we'll be doing Dr. Phil out of the job here if we keep this up. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting pretty technical. I'm impressed with you guys. This is great. <laughs> and I remember Brian said earlier, um, if you're a little bit thirsty, you are dehydrated. You were dehydrated a while ago. Yeah, too right. Yeah, and that's something to yeah. think about. Yeah. So if you're thinking, "Oh, I'm a little thirsty," yeah, you should have had something to drink half an hour ago at least. Mm. And, yep. and there is a bit of a delay when you start to get that headache and you're starting to get thirsty, for instance, and then you start to hydrate. There is a delay time. It does take some time to get that water, and it's not just a, an instant fix. And particularly with outdoors things, riding motorcycles for sure when you start to feel that come on, you, you've missed it. You're too late. It's time to get at it and keep at it until you start to feel better. Yeah. Stop, stop and make some shade. Just get yourself out of the sunshine and start knocking back that fluid. Um, I, I was reading uh, yesterday about a guy who, who'd ridden for nine hours in the baking sun. And he oh. was wondering why towards the end of the day, he was making stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah. well, mate, you were actually lucky to be able to stay on your bike. Does anyone else have anything to add to carrying the water? Ideas? Doesn't matter how you carry it, just carry it. Okay. And carry Remember more that, than you think you'll ever use, yep, may yeah. I just say. Oh, good yeah. advice. Yeah. And another one that I always remember that keeps coming out is from hiking days is the water is better in you than on your back. Mm-hmm. And water weighs one kilo per liter. Remember that the stuff's heavy, but you got to factor it in. And that's why I keep bagging on about um, that weight down low in between your wheels because it makes a massive difference. And you've got to oh, carry yeah. a lot of water for some of these places. And something else to take into account is how much cooking do you do and what sort of foods do you like to cook? You can lose an awful lot of water um, with rice and with pasta and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couscous. Couscous is yeah. used much less water. Absolutely. And it's much more fuel efficient too, isn't it? Yes, much better. Okay, well, we'll take a quick break here and then we're going to come back. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, connecting with others, sort of analog style and maybe some overloaded bike tips or ideas. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by freshtracks.co.uk. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s and what they do is work with companies or, or groups to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. I've mentioned before today, now that everything's changing, more people are working from home. This is probably more important than ever. They work with a lot of big companies like Mars, Pfizer, Comic Relief, Yahoo, etc. So their website is freshtracks.co.uk. Of course, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio Raw. So we've got a, a question from Andrew Lambert. This is when I was talking about connecting with people, sort of analog style. He says, hello, he loves the show. He's getting ready to go on a trip. I think he's gearing up for his first motorcycle adventure this year. He's bought a 2011 KLR 650. Good choice. And he's ready to explore. Now his question is, what are some good sources of contact with other motorcycles or overlanders besides social media, such as Facebook or or Instagram? And the reason is he's, he's trying to pull away to, you know, to get some privacy in his life, trying to pull away from the internet as much as he can. And he still wants to connect with people. Now, it made me think about when I read this, I was thinking about when we were talking about, uh, I can't remember what the topic was, it doesn't come to mind right now, but I'm thinking Michelle talking about the boards. Oh, we were, t- we were talking about uh, hostels 
And uh, Michelle was mentioning about the boards and, and I think I asked something and she said, well, you can't really replace those boards. It made me think about that sort of uh, communication style. So I guess that's what he's looking for is, are things like that, other ways of, uh, of communicating. Who wants to start off? Well, I can do the obvious one. Do it. Everybody yeah. here knows what the obvious one is, right? If you the don't, hook. I'll say it because I've used it a lot. <laughs> okay, Michelle, okay, you say go it. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Michelle. Horizons Unlimited. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. Horizons Unlimited, for sure. I mean, it, it's the best way for me to meet people. So not just using the forum and the website and all of that, but also going to the live events. You make so many fantastic contacts and connections that I've kept in touch with. So I email people directly um, and have made friends and friendships that I use still to this day after going to my first HU meet almost 10 years ago. Great. There's another we one that, that you didn't well, mention. Yeah, we were there. <laughs> yes, you were. That's where I first met you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right, and that's exactly one. Um, we got onto Horizons, and it um, got the juices flowing in relation to travel and the fact that we could do it. And the other thing was meeting people. Uh, and again, like we had our one of our first ones in it was in the UK, and we're still friends with those Kiwis we met at that one. Um, yeah, they're great. Um, another one is. You know, if, when you're traveling, local bike clubs, mm-hmm. local bike clubs are a fantastic resource. They know the good roads. Uh, they'll look after you. They'll take you around. Um, and uh, quite often you can just hook up with one person from a local bike club and all of a sudden you've got a, a like-minded person in that club who loves to travel, loves to camp, knows all the good roads in the local area, and you can have a lot of fun with that. We found in t- We did our first big trip in 2003 and internet was around, but it wasn't um, it was it wasn't so easy to come across, and certainly there was no Facebook or Instagram, anything like that. And we found even just um, when you get went into a petrol station, people would come up and talk to you about the bike or where you were from, and you would find they would introduce you to someone who had a bike shop that might be able to help out with a tire. And when you went there, there might be someone who, you know, you'd meet someone who wanted to go out and have a meal that night or, you know, it's um, just sort of word of mouth. And, and we also, if we saw a traveller going the other way, we would stop and do a U-turn and you'd find out that they would be doing a U-turn too and you'd meet halfway and talk to them about where they've been, where they were going and sometimes pal up and travel with them or they would tell you a great place to to stay where, where they'd met um, other travellers. So Those moments were pure gold, weren't they? Yeah, Sorry, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And, and sometimes um, when you go through oh, pretty remote border crossings, they have a big ledger. And I can remember going through Pakistan and we saw a Richard and Lisa Parkinson and they were travelling in front of us. And we knew they were in front of us because every time we filled in a ledger at a border crossing, a frontier <laughs> crossing, we could see them. And we knew they were a day or two in front of us, you know. So we kept looking for Richard and Lisa. And uh, sure enough, we're going through the Karakur Mountains, I think. Yeah. And, um, and they were heading the other here way. Come, here comes this big TGM Yamaha overloaded going the other way, and it was Richard and Lisa. So we piled up and we travelled together for a while. And, yeah, you, there's numerous ways uh, other than – the, um, the the web and all that sort of stuff to catch up with people. Yeah, another big one that, that seems to get missed 
too often, which really surprises me, I don't know why it's been going for 20 years, is the Horizons Unlimited Communities. There's 838 communities in 116 countries as of this year. And the idea of the Horizons Unlimited Travelers Communities is to enable motorcycle travelers, both on the road and for those at home, to meet up with like-minded people. So you can, if you're in a community, somebody may say, I'm arriving in Brisbane, which is the very first Horizons community. They arrive in Brisbane and send an email to the Brisbane community and say, hey, I've arrived, I'm here, I want to talk to people, I need help, or I've broken down, or just want to meet people and have a beer or go for a ride or something. And I think Brisbane has something like 80 people in the community. And you can meet up with them, talk to them, uh, find out where the good roads are, what's going on, and they'll pass you on to people down the road that they know. And it's a fantastic way to meet people and find out what's going on in the local area. And we've seen it happen where people from South America, for instance, get somebody from Australia and they meet up and get a connection. And then the guy from South America goes to Australia and guess what? Instant friends on both ends. And this has been happening for over 20 years now and it works really well. It's a, it's we a, actually uh, used the community in Chile, Grant, uh, where yeah. we were having problems with insurance and our Spanish wasn't good enough to have these sort of technical conversations. And we spoke to someone, a guy from the community, uh, and he, yeah. was, he yeah. was able to act as interpreter for us. And he was so kind and used, he spoke very good English so we could explain to him what we needed. And uh, he also understood the sort of insurance that you needed on a motorcycle trip. So the HU community has been invaluable to us at different times. And I think a lot of times people don't want to write the community because they don't want to bother them. But guess what? These people signed up to be bothered by travelers coming mm. through. You are the most yeah. fun they've had in donkey's ages. So, yeah, write them. And that's an excuse for a party. It's an excuse to go for a ride. It's an excuse for them to meet somebody from halfway around the world. That's really interesting to them. They are fascinated by you and your trip and they want to do it themselves. And it's great conversation. You'll meet lifelong friends. Um, definitely check the out. Classic the classic examples are Ken and Carol Duval. Yeah. They've had more been, travelers staying in, in their place than, um, than people of cross borders in the world. For everyone who comes <laughs> to Australia. So, oh, do you know Ken and Carol? Of course we know Ken and Carol. <laughs> yeah, I reckon, they're, I reckon they're rivaling the Hyatt motels, sure. <laughs> yeah, and they've used the communities a lot themselves. Some weeks back we did a, a piece on a guy named Harold Serrano, and um, it's a young, a relatively young guy who was off on a motorcycle trip. He, he doesn't have any of the normal connections that everybody seems to. You know, he didn't get into learning about adventure motorcycling or anything. What he sort of stumbled into was bike clubs, which has already been mentioned. And the interesting thing about that I found that throughout this interview is that he met a whole bunch of um, different people than the adventure motorcycle community. He actually didn't tap into the adventure motorcycle community. He was passed from one bike club to another, to another, as he went through South America, he had an amazing time and felt that he was always looked after yeah. by these people that he was meeting a long time. And, he, and same thing as, you know, what you guys are saying is, is, you know, you make friends this way and um, probably lifelong friends, or at least some of them will be. 
but that was a completely different group of people that he connected with through the bike club. So I just thought I'd throw that in there because I, I think he, his story really illustrated that, that sort of analog connection. He wasn't using the internet for it. Yeah. Doug Watke found that in Russia. He first, he was riding um, a chopper of some kind through Russia. And the first time he pulled into a town, there were some guys waiting for him. They had heard he was coming and they were standing at the outside mm. outskirts of the city waiting for him to arrive. They pulled him in and passed him from along from their club to the next club to the next club. And he says, the, the hospitality is fantastic, but it'll kill you for so much. <laughs> yeah, no, that feeling. Yeah, my got your Iron Angels almost got me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super oh, great. Any oh, other ideas? Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, what? One of the other ways of, of connecting, and I think it still runs, um, a friend of mine told me um, th that this still happens, is that when you go into a major city, for example, let's take Nairobi, and there are quite a few um, budget hotels and there's um, a couple of places where you can camp and so on. Um, you're not picking up all of the information from the notice boards at those places, but there tend to be uh, a cafe or a restaurant or two um, within the city that will have notice boards, what places that lots of travellers will go and meet up. And um, for example, there were, when I was going through Nairobi, there was somewhere called the Thorn Tree. Did you did you guys ever go to that? Um, they had a special notice board there and um, travellers, regardless of where they were staying, would, would use this notice board for hints and tips and um, equipment swaps and asks and where they got trouble and needed some help. Does anybody know how to do this? And um, it was good. It was very entertaining. And you could always meet interesting people at these cafes. That's fantastic. Internet cafes would do that these days. Yeah. The internet cafes. Yeah. You'll, you'll meet other travelers there. That's yep. what they're there for. To connect with other people and see what's going on. Are internet cafes still big? In a lot of the world, That's they're dying. That's the problem with phones now. People don't need to use them. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're Everybody's kind of going better. away. Mm -hmm. People are becoming yeah, more self-sufficient with their phones. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you see them in cafes at um, wherever with their head down looking at their phone, uh, yeah. not communicating. And that's a real problem, I think, nowadays. Mm -hmm. There's a few apps that you can put on your phone, um, too, that, I, that I've used for connecting with people. So even though I may not want to use social media as a way of connecting or finding people, and you're able to find, um, obviously, communities through places like Horizons Unlimited, and there's sometimes local writer forums. So I know in the Black Hills, we have a group called uh, Dakota Dual Sport Riders, and in Newfoundland, they have RideTheRock.com, and that's a group of Newfoundland riders. Um, there's different websites for different communities and just a quick Google search will allow you to connect maybe through their website um, and send an email and just put a word out. And at least that opens the conversation for you to find another way to connect. So if you want to send an email, um, one of the things that I really found in traveling in South America and Europe is that I use an app on my phone, uh, WhatsApp. Uh, Snapchat is also another one, but WhatsApp seems to be a little bit more global. And so then I can actually communicate through that directly or with groups um, by sharing my cell phone number, but it's internet based. So I'm not calling out 
Um, and that seems to be a, a really good way to, you know, connect. I've actually had writers in South America, and this was when I was working on that Women Writers World Relay Project. One woman from Colombia took my phone number and dispersed it to about 20 women around South America to friends of hers to try and recruit help. And we actually connected the dots around that whole continent to try and find writers to carry the baton for that event simply through using WhatsApp. So there's Mm. also some apps that you could consider using as a way to connect. And although that may be internet, it's not like social media because they're they're sort of closed groups, right? Yeah, they are. They're closed Mm. groups. So it's limited. It's not, you're not subjected to advertising. It's not being resold, Mm -hmm. um, all that kind of stuff. I agree with Michelle. It is very good, and and you've got the option to to not only to to tap out text, but you can also, um, if you've got good good enough Wi-Fi, um, you can you know have um, the equivalent of telephone chats, and you can even mm-hmm. have video chats with a group of people, uh, and that can be um, really rather raucous, depending on the amount of alcohol that's been slipping down. <laughs> good point. Has anyone used the uh, the BMW anonymous book? I haven't, but I've got I've got um, one, and I'm prizing it. We we looked at it when we had our breakdown in Smithers in um, BC, and um, but no, we didn't really need it. Um, and that's another good way to meet people is have a breakdown. That works. <laughs> Just go into a country and have a breakdown. <laughs> good tip, Brian. Thank you for that. The, the BMW Anonymous book you have to pay, I guess, to become a member of of one of the clubs, and and I, I'm sure it's only BMW. But it gives you lists of people in all different cities who will offer different services. They may just want to get together for a cup of coffee. They may have a full garage to uh, offer you. So if you're riding a BMW, um, that may be an option for you if you're interested in doing that. I'm just thinking because that's totally analog, right? We're talking telephone numbers and stuff with the book. Right. It is also a very heavy piece of kit to carry. It's a a tome. It's nothing compares to Brian's bead breaker. <laughs> Very Thanks, good point, Jim. Jim. Very good point. I actually hadn't raised the tire pliers yet this this uh, episode, but thanks very much for reminding me. Oh, happy to be there. <laughs> All right. I don't know what you're smoking over there tonight, Jim, but boy, jeez. <laughs> it's all the fresh air, guys. Mm-hmm. Fresh air. Okay, so um, I think we've done that one. Um, anyone else? Was there anything we we missed on that? That's pretty much covered it. Yeah, I think so. Yep. Obviously, um, yeah, the the hub is the main thing. We always say that on this show. And and that's uh, horizonsunlimited.com. So Stuart Elliott, he writes in and he said um, he's went on a holiday. Basically, he he loaded up his bike. He's got a, um, has he got an Africa twin? Yeah, he's got an Africa twin. So he loaded up his bike. His pannier is fully loaded. His top box half loaded. And with himself and his wife on the bike riding two up, it is over the Africa Twins maximum payload capacity. And what he's wondering is, what do people do about that? How do you handle the, um, the extra weight? I mean, what can you do? And think of all the, all the stresses that we're talking here. Like, because people may not realize that every motorcycle has a maximum vehicle weight, maximum gross vehicle weight. It's got a maximum payload. There's things to take in, into consideration. The frame itself, the subframe, even the tires are likely overloaded at that point. So what do you do? Well, My first question is, do they seriously mean that that's all it will take? I mean, is that seriously if you put one kilogram over their maximum load that you're going to break the bike? Surely there's some leeway in that. 
No, I think it's the same as anything. There's there they put things in there. Like I mean, you know, it's it's the same as all all uh, limits, and it's like your due dates on your food. You know, they'll they'll pick a date that's well within the working area. I'm sure it will hold a little more weight, but as soon as you get into that, you get into that gray zone where things are going to start to break. And and here's where it shows up: is you hear it all the time, people going off on on trips and uh, blow the rear shock out, break their subframes. Those are all indications that either extreme abuse, but more likely some abuse with too much weight. Yeah. Big, the shocks are well, the single biggest thing to get right. Um, I've, gone, yeah. I've been over this many, many times, and I'm sure Brian will say exactly the same thing. You've got to upgrade the rear spring, or preferably the entire shock, if you're going to be really overloaded. Um, the number of people who have gone through shock after shock after shock is just stunning. I know one guy had an R100 GS, same as um, Sam's R80 GS, the paralever. And he went through, I think it was five rear shocks before he finally uh, gave up and bought a decent shock. He was always trying for, what's the cheapest shock out there? Can I get a good used one? You know, that kind of nonsense. And he finally broke the frame because the pounding of the damaged failed shock was going straight through the frame and the frame broke. I was so lucky to, to get the advice to upgrade the suspension before I, I left. Um, I mean, I started thinking about it because I started thinking, well, good grief, I'm going to be carrying so much stuff, don't laugh. Um, and uh, I mean, the suspension's not designed to carry this amount of gear. But um, it was a, a guy called James that I met um, just before the, going off on the big trip. And in the mid 80s, he and his girlfriend spent four years um, traveling around the world, two up on a 1985 um, BMW R80 GS. And uh, it was all fine. Um, overweight wise until they started to go onto the um, the rougher roads and then they broke the subframe which they had welded along the way and then James worked out that actually the suspension simply wasn't enough um, but they were you know way out in the boonies and they had no access to back then to um, you know better suspension and all of this sort of stuff so James came up with the idea of welding a couple of lugs on one on the subframe and one on the um, the, the swinging arm and um, just got a, a local um, shock from a, I think it was from a Honda or something like that, and just put that in in tandem, and that saved their bacon. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, you just got to think about those mm -hmm. things, haven't you? And when I set off, I had a top box over the the pillion seat, and I thought this was a really logical place to carry my top box because it wasn't swinging off the back end of the bike, and you know I was just solo, so I didn't worry about it too much. But the frame for carrying this. Uh, wasn't strong enough. So not only did I have the weight of what I was putting in the top box up high, but it was um, shifting, it was swinging. And the stress that that put on the subframe um, broke it. Yeah. Too much stuff, too high. We got rid of our, we got rid of our top box. Um, it, yeah. We posted at home, funnily yeah. enough, yeah. and bought um, a gear sack because your yeah. top box weighs 10 kilos or more before you even put anything in it. Exactly. Yeah, with that that's you know, spraying, you take that off. But you know, I, I um, I've got a um, a mount for an 1150 GS hanging up in my shed. Actually, it's been um, aluminium welded all over the world because uh, it's broken. Um, I think uh, with the first time it broke, we were somewhere in India, and I've gone over this culvert and a fully loaded 1150 GS with two of us on it, um, getting both wheels off the ground. It's great, but when it leans, <laughs> things, things go crack. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, that, that ended up um, being welded a few times. 
Um, but um, Cheryl's right. You know, the top boxes are fantastic to keep your gear nice and dry and all that sort of stuff if you're not carrying a lot. But when you want to take uh, more stuff, and particularly two up, we sent it home and we got ourselves a, I'm just trying to think, 50-litre bag. Might have been a little bit smaller than that. Um, and uh, that weighs next to nothing and strapped it on the back and that made a huge difference. And Grant's right about upgrading uh, particularly your shock absorber and the spring. Now, um, for my GS, I got Olin's shockers. I had to fight with BMW to give me a bike that didn't have um, the electronic suspension. Uh, in the days that I bought my bike, it wasn't up to scratch. And I immediately put upgraded Olin's shockers on it. And I spoke to the importer of Olin's here in Australia told him what I was doing. He said, well, you need a stronger spring. Um, so he fitted a, uh, a more heavy-duty spring to the, the shock, and it was great. And I'm still rebuilding that shock after um, – everyone knows that we um, we snapped the shaft in Canada, and um, but that was because of um, water leaking into the bottom joint and seizing the bottom joint, not because the shocker was actually not carrying the weight. Um but, you know, it's, that's what happens on the road. Um, you've got to maintain things, and I probably didn't um, think about that and pull it apart and re-grease it on the road. But um, uh, heavy-duty shock, heavy-duty suspension, and be very mindful of the weight. And I think those weight limits, you should get to as close to them as you can if you're carrying a lot of gear. Um, try not to exceed it. Um, it's a lot of weight going through tyres. Um, when you think about it, I think the new 1250 GS is rated at about 400, uh, 478 kilograms, I think, and the bike itself weighs about 250. So, you know, by the time you put two people and all your gear on it, you're getting damn close to that maximum weight. And you really do have to be ruthless when you're travelling two up with what you can and can't pack. Shirley, is it true that I heard um, that you're an advocate, you guys are advocates of wearing G-strings to keep the weight down? But surely, no, that's, that's, that's an excellent point. I, I think I think the number one thing you have to do is look at that weight first. I mean, obviously, yeah, the suspension upgrades and everything, I, I agree with those. But weight is the most important, right? Because the whole problem is that you're overweight with two people yes. and all your load. I love the ideas of getting rid of the, the top box because we're all the same. I think that if you have area, you tend to fill it up, right? I mean, even if you use Grant's two inches thing, I mean, you know, if you have a small pannier, two inches from the top, you got a little bit in there. If you get a big pannier, two inches from the top, you get a lot more in there, right? So the first thing is to look at that weight and understand the bike will only handle so much weight. You have to make sacrifices and you need to start thinking like a lightweight backpacker to begin with and, you know, trim that down. And the other thing to think about is the tyres that you're using because uh, when you're travelling, um, you want hard-wearing, uh, strong tyres, um, not like, um, you know, when you go riding, scratching around the hills where you want softer tyres, lesser pressure, more grip, that sort of stuff. So it is a compromise. You're right, Jim. Everything is a compromise when you travel like that. And tyres, often you hear people complain about tyres, you know, they don't last very long or chunks coming off, and I think we've mentioned this before, but... That is off, uh, often to associated with weight, excessive weight on the bike. Air pressure is another thing. I mean, I think when you're when you're running that much weight, you're you're going to have to run your maximum pressure for that bike. 
because that tire yeah. uh, or that air pressure is what's holding the tire up, right? That, that air in the tire. So that's another thing to keep in mind with it, which is changes your ride and everything. But, you know, I mean, so does a loaded bike. Just careful with the yeah. maximum pressure on the, on the bike or the tires. Yes. There's a maximum that on the uh, tire itself, what its maximum load is and maximum pressure. If you look on the tire, it'll say, for instance, yeah. max load 49 PSI at X kilos. That is the maximum. And if you need to go over that in order to keep the tires from overheating, you are grossly overloaded. And I don't mean just a little bit. You are grossly overloaded. You really got to watch that. And that's per tire. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people running ridiculous pressures because otherwise the tire overheats. But if you do that, then the tire is going to fail from excess pressure and too much load and there's not enough flex and blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on. So you've got to be really careful to make sure that you are using the correct pressure for the tire as well as whatever the manufacturer recommends. I mean, BMW will say a certain pressure for solo, a certain pressure for two up with luggage. And what about with maximum, with a ridiculous amount of luggage? How much more is enough? You've got to be really careful to get right. Yeah, there's a category they oh, should they introduce. <laughs> yeah, stupid amount of luggage. I think, I think BMW would just shake their head and say, no, no, you don't do that. That's right. They do. I, I forget what the numbers were, but they're talking something like 12 kilos in your top box is maximum. Yeah. That's right. a stock BMW at one point in time. 12 kilos is nothing. I've right. seen people put 60 or 70 kilos in there. It's ridiculous. It's the same as a KLR. What's the KLR, Michelle? Do you know what, you're, you're, um, what they recommend for that? For the rack on the back? Yeah, the I thought rack. it was something. I thought it was 25 pounds. Yeah, I think and it is. I know. My, I have an 80 liter, I think, Ortlieb gear bag. And I, I know <laughs> twice that weight on yeah. all the time. <laughs> Michelle, does that fit in with the two uses rule in that you can use it as a baby bag? I can use it as a swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> a bathtub. That's great. <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. It, it, I think something to be mentioned as well. I mean, I before I went to South America with the KLR, I had a new progressive shock and spring put on my bike and had the suspension upgraded and dialed in. And that's something way beyond my skill set. I remember my partner at the time making the comment that suspension was sort of a dark art. And that's always been in the back of my mind that it is it is so fine-tuned and they're so good at all of the balance. The guys at the shop that I took my bike to in North Carolina to have that done uh, weighed all of my loaded panniers, weighed me. I literally had to stand on a scale wearing my helmet and all of my gear. And I can tell you that the handling on my bike after they dialed it in it was pristine. It was the most comfortable riding I ever had with my KLR nice. because they had really fine-tuned it so perfectly. So I can highly recommend it makes a difference in your ride experience too. Yeah. And there's safety. Yeah. Did too. they do the static like static sag, sag as well, Michelle? Yeah. Oh yeah. They were all that. Yeah. 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 And something else it's that people important. forget is that uh, especially when your rear shock is overloaded, it fails. If they Rear shocks don't last very long. The factory shocks are good for something like 40,000 kilometers tops. And then they're bagged. They should be replaced. That's one of the beauties of an upgraded suspension is that you can actually get it rebuilt instead of just replace it. But I've seen people with 150,000 kilometers on their bikes and it's the original shock. And I tell them, that's ridiculous. Your shock is completely bagged. And they say, no, no, it handles fine. It handles fine. No, it does not. 
You because, just have forgotten. <laughs> yeah, you have forgotten exactly what it felt right. like. And, and as well, human beings, we are really good at adapting to yeah. whatever it is. So as the handling deteriorates, we adapt to that. And we adjust our speed and we adjust the lean angle and all the rest of it. And the number of people that I've had come to me and say, wow, you were so right. I put new shocks on it. I could not believe the difference. Yeah. It's just amazing. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I just out. I just had my I just had the the front Olins done on the telelever grant, mm-hmm. and the guys I pulled it out and took it into him. They I said no, this has done a fair bit of work, and I was just trying to think when I rebuilt it last, and I couldn't remember. And when they pulled it apart, they said this thing has done that much work. It's delaminated on the inside. It had to be re laminated on the inside of the, wow. the shaft. Right. <laughs> Man, oh, you know, it's an amazing yeah. difference. And understanding normal life expectancy of equipment versus what kind of use and abuse, frankly, that our bikes and the equipment and all of the suspension and everything takes on adventure riding travel is another level of beating that that stuff is taking. So I think to some degree, in fairness, I think there's some allowances for reducing the life expectancy because you really do ride some you know, difficult roads. And when we're talking about, we call them washboards. Oh, yeah. um, yeah, you know, a lot of rough, rocky sand and gravel or any technical roads, it, it can really reduce that life expectancy. So it's something you need to watch even maybe a bit sooner and pay more close attention to and, and do the proper maintenance for your bike. So it lasts the trip. Excellent. Yeah, I was saying 45 kilometers is, is assuming good quality pavement and normal loads and not yeah. pushing it hard. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing anything over normal light loads with just a light girlfriend on the back, yeah, you're overloaded and you're pushing it and you need to reduce your numbers for sure. It's right. really interesting seeing some of the numbers for vehicles that are designed to be ridden or driven generally, uh, trucks and stuff off-road and in nasty conditions because that's where they live. Um, the numbers are like half what they would be for street use. Mm-hmm. Pretty bit staggering. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's an excellent point, Michelle. That that's really important. Sort of get your mindset around that, and and don't start whining because you know you've had to replace your your shock when you've overloaded it and ran it through a, a whole bunch of rough stuff. So that's a that's yeah, a really valid like, point. This is just such a good question from Stuart, really, isn't it? Because yeah. it is so important to the success and happiness of your trip to get these sorts of things right. Um, but in the end, a lot of it comes down to keeping your weight down what Mm -hmm. do you really really need to be carrying and you know it brings us back to the question that we were talking about earlier on carrying water you've got to take into account that every so often you're going to need to be carrying an awful lot more weight in water so what you're carrying is a standard thing um yeah can't be approaching the max and what about all those (laughs) shoes you bought right surely and and you've got to carry those (laughs) until you get to the next place where you can mail them Souvenir. No, shoes aren't my issue, but I want to see Sam jettison his bottle of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, That's an easy way to do that, Shirley. It's not yep. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and he hydrates at the same time. Absolutely. On hard days, um, I, I wash my feet in them, in, in my whiskey, and it works marvels. The only thing is, of course, I wash them from the inside. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just as well. Very good, very good. Things you need to think about. When we first travelled, we would take a couple of books, one each, and then um, a spare uh, for the first person who finished before the other one had read the other books, and we would take a guidebook. Well, now all of that can be on a a Kobo or a e-reader, whatever. 
So that's cutting down on your weight. There's all sorts of things you can do to still take the things you want uh, that will make your trip the trip you want it to be um, and, and keep the weight light. Lightweight yeah. clothing now instead of the heavy-duty stuff that you before all this lightweight stuff was available, all those things. Yep. And certainly camping gear. I mean, there's, you know, stuff that's so light now compared to what it was 20, 30 years ago. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, um, I think we should move into plugs. We've been talking for quite a while now. Let's get in there. Let's start with Michelle. Michelle, what do you have for plugs? Well, I've got a couple of things. First, I wanted to say uh, thank you to some listeners, some raw listeners from uh, around the United States have stopped in to say hello, and I'm passing along their hellos to all of you on the panel today with me. Very nice. David from Minnesota, uh, Richard and Jan from Colorado, and Mark and Brad from Nebraska are all listeners, mentioned that they love the show, um, and they stopped into South Dakota. So I thought that was a fun treat. I always love getting to meet some fellow riders um, nice. and see them That's see them great. out exploring when I'm stuck working. That's perfect. Yeah, I know the they feeling. They can rub it in. <laughs> but genuinely, it was really fun to meet all of them. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to all of our listeners that do that because I think it, it it's really fun to meet fellow writers, to hear stories, you know, that they've experienced as we have conversations among our small group. Um, I can only imagine the incredible stories and experiences that a lot of the listeners have to share. So I always love when they drop a line and ask questions. And this this episode is the perfect example because there's so much conversation that we get to have amongst um, us and the listeners combined when we have an episode like this. Um, so so thank you to the listeners for sure. Um, a personal plug that I wanted to mention, if it's okay, is um, Rev Sisters, which is a partnership I have with two other women, and we have done these online motorcycle film festivals. We have our next one coming up uh, August 13th through the 29th. But what I'm actually hoping to spread the word about is that we're looking for novice filmmakers who are interested in submitting films. And the film festivals are free for the first weekend. It's free to submit a film. Um, it's just a fun way of kind of sharing moto adventures and moto community uh, moto community with other writers from around the world. So um, anybody who's interested in submitting a film, go to RevSisters.com and check it out. We'd love to see your movie. Now, when you say novice, does that mean that they've never made a film before? Or does that just mean that they're not a professional filmmaker? We are defining that as not a professional filmmaker. So people who've done some trips, maybe made other films, maybe even posted some videos on YouTube. But if they aren't a professional filmmaker and um, aren't, you know, making their living or career out of making films, uh, that's kind of where we define that. Sterling Noreen is out, right? He's not allowed. He, uh, (laughs) he's in the... uh, experienced elite category of filmmakers for us and kindly has submitted a few films in the past. So yeah, he's a pro Mm -hmm. for sure. (laughs) Okay, great plugs. Thank you very much, Michelle. Shirley, what do you have? Oh, nothing. I'll just pass to Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good on you. Um, I've got a couple of things. I, I, um, as you know, I'm on this motorcycle community engagement panel here in Victoria and here in Victoria, we actually pay an extra amount of money on our registration for so-called motorcycle safety issues, which 
there's been a real thorn in the side of um, a few of us and uh, quite a few motorcycle riders down here. Um, but being on this committee, um, I've been looking at um, what they've been doing with that money. And one of the things they're doing is creating a enduro um, ride through the forests of Miram South, which is south of Melbourne here. So any of the local riders, um, we are in the process of developing a motorcycle-only riding track of 40-plus kilometres through the beautiful forests of um, uh, um, Gippsland um, with some of that money. And it's going to be a purpose-built track. Um, it will be uh, – I'm on the committee to go and have a look at it, the design. It'll be a little challenging. Uh, there'll be safety areas where motorcycles and riders, if they come to grief, can be recovered. But it's a, it's a change in thought from motorcyclists and particularly people who ride in the, in the um, forested areas being um, – castigated as, you know, destroying the environment and all the rest of it. It's a complete change of thought with um, the uh, forestry people that, hey, maybe we have to um, provide something for these people. So let's hope we can get it up and running. And uh, I'd like to see riders, particularly um, from around Melbourne and um, country Victoria, use the track. So we hope to have it up and running um, within, uh, I I, I hope, within the next uh, six to 12 months. Um, so the design is going in. We're going out to have a look at the at the tracks itself. So um, I'm trying to give something back to motorcycling that I've enjoyed for 50 years. So that's my little pluck. So keep an eye on that space, um, ladies and gents. Well, hopefully that becomes a model for other people in other parts of the world as well because um, oh, so. that's, that's certainly Absolutely. positive. Yeah. Use that here in British Columbia. Send me some info, Brian. Yeah, well, 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 well this is... Yeah, this is a trial. We want to get it up and running and it'll be run for the next few years. And if it's successful, it'll be rolled out into other areas of Victoria and hopefully right across Australia. So, yeah, mate, I'll I'll, I'll send you the details when I um, get all the design and all the rest sent through to me. Cool. Sam, how about you? Okay, so my plug. Um, I've just finished reading a a really terrific book. Um, It's by Des Malloy. Uh, the first of his books that I read was called The Last Hurrah, which tells the story of a motorcycle journey across Asia on a 650cc Panther um, and a 1954 Norton <laughs> 600. Yeah, I know, completely nuts. But this this yep. story is even more nuts. Um, the book's called No One Said It Would Be Easy. And I could rattle on about this for about half an hour, which, of course, I'm not allowed to. But basically, this is the story of... Um, some young, very enthusiastic Kiwis who were heading from the UK to the USA and then down through Central and South America. Now, this is back in the 1970s, and I remember this because, well, not remember these particular guys, but back in those days, uh, if you wanted to find your way around London as a visitor, the advice was find an Australian, a Kiwi, or a South African. They'll know exactly the best way to go because there were so many of these guys living and working in London at the time, and they knew the city back to front and they knew it all over. You could ask a local and they'd know their own area, but they wouldn't necessarily know anywhere else in London. But these guys would. Anyway, lots of them were working, doing all sorts of odd jobs and that sort of stuff and heading off and doing trips and then coming back and working a bit more. Well, Des um, and his 
brother and another mate and his girlfriend, they set off on a pre-war BSA and two single-cylinder Panther uh, motorcycles. And this is just classic original day uh, motorcycle overlanding. These guys had hardly any money, almost no planning, and their ride depended on good luck and just faith that they were going to make it work. And it makes absolutely fascinating reading. So um, I would add this to, to your list if you're looking for a new travel book. No one said it would be easy by Des Malloy. It's fun. Okay, good. And we'll get links <laughs> in the show notes for everything everyone's mentioned. And we still have Grant. Grant, what do you have? Well, we've got travelers meetings. Well, we're hoping we're going to have travelers meetings. <laughs> As, as we all know, there's been a few uh, <clears throat> issues over the last year and a half with having events and getting people together. Um, but we're very optimistic for CanWest, August 26th to 29th here in British Columbia as our first event of the year. We are very optimistic, yes, as I sit here praying. Um, we have a few other events. Check out horizonsunlimited.com slash events to see what is on. And we will do updates as we can as to what's changing. So far, we have Romania, Germany, France, California, Virginia, and South Africa is expected. Plus, of course, Can West, which is my home event. So hopefully you'll be able to get to one of those. Hopefully we'll be able to do it safely. And we are taking all precautions and making sure that everything is as safe as possible uh, at all our events. And if we are in any doubt, we will cancel. And post well, I shouldn't say use the word cancel. We will postpone to the next possible opportunity, which will be 2022. So check it out. Hopefully we'll be able to get together and have some good times and get some inspiration and start doing a little bit of traveling and getting outside our local bubbles. But in the meantime, local bubbles, get out and ride where you can, do what you can, ride safely so you're not overloading your local um, emergency responders, etc. And do what you can, be kind, be safe, have a good time. Well said. And just Grant, um, we're going to put, we already have the link for Horizons Unlimited in the show notes, but can you send me the link for the communities so we can put that in as well? And Really easy. Horizonsunlimited.com slash community. Okay. So just, just send me that link though, so I can just have it copied and paste. <laughs> of course I will. Anyway, so that wraps things up. Thank you very much, everyone. That was a lot of fun as usual. I always enjoy sitting down and, and talking with you all. Yeah. It's always been fun. Absolutely. Yeah, Great talking to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Hello to everybody out there. And- Worth getting out of bed for. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Thank Cheers. Cheers. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get eBooks at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Michelle Lampfair is a moto traveler that also has a couple of great moto travel books, The Butterfly Route and Tips for 
for traveling overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. 